0: This week, we continue our sermon series about the impact of Easter and the truth of the resurrection. And this week, we talk about death. Sin has been covered up by the resurrection. But what does that mean for the end of our life and as we face death? This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, April 26, 2015. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. On behalf of the church, we say thank you that you guys have those abilities to play like that. And wow. I was going to sing along what's one of my favorite songs, but I thought if I don't sing along, then I can put it on the recording of the sermon and you don't hear Frankenstein singing in the background with harmony. So, So we'll record it and we'll put it, it is recorded and we'll put it on hopefully and we can put it on with the sermon this week. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series, Easter Impact, and just to kind of remember what Paul's uh, train of thought is. We have this long chapter, 50-some verses in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the beginning, he's trying to say, like, the resurrection's real, and his evidence is, like, listen, a lot of us have witnessed this. There's 500 people who have seen this. The disciples have seen it. I've seen this. So that's his point number one. Then he slides in, as we talked about last week, the fact that Jesus is raised has benefits to you because your sins would still be on you unless Jesus actually rose from the dead. This is proof your sins have been taken away. So that's part two. Um, Today we talk about death and um, the the finality. In fact, in that section that we're looking at, it it calls the final enemy death and the importance of resurrection when it's connected to uh, the death that all of us face. So how many of you grew up in a home where there was boys and girls? How many? So... How many of you have boys and girls in your home now? So you might not fully understand the differences between uh, boys and girls unless you have this kind of situation, but there's a distinct difference, right? I grew up, we had four boys, one girl. And as a kid, I didn't understand this stuff. She wanted light blue carpet in a room, and I thought that doesn't make any sense. She didn't play with Legos. She, she had dolls that were in cases. Like, what, what's the point of a doll if you can't even, like, play with it? So she had these collector dolls, and she, 1982, she went to see Rick Springfield, which I don't know how that makes sense, who is still touring, by the way. He's going to Parker Days this year. So if you want to see Rick Springfield along with the other 45-year-old women, you can do that. You can just go and see Rick. It's going to be awesome. So there's this difference. And the culmination, the boys learn two things growing up. And the rule number one that you learn as a boy is that how to build things, right? So you build forts with cushions. You build sandcastles. You uh, build Lego towers. The only reason you learn to build these things is what, though? Lesson number two, so that you can destroy them. That is the two things. You just need to build things because if you can't build it, you can't destroy it. So these two things are kind of at odds. And this is the ultimate in your education as you're growing up, as a boy. This is uh, your dad takes you down and he teaches you to build things so that you can destroy them. It's not mowing the lawn. It's not understanding girls because that comes a little bit later, right? like heaven. And then, you know, like, late. the ultimate, though, is when your dad takes you aside and he, and he says to you, son, let's go build a fire. This is where construction and destruction meet. He says, I want to teach you the most efficient way to make something so that it can be destroyed even better. This is like the manliest phrase on under, let's go build something that will be destroyed. And as a kid, there's a fascination. We have now mapped the human genome, and I would guess that boys are 50% moth. That's a guess because you put a flame on the, the table and they just stare at it. And they, how many times do they take their napkin and they, they want to touch it? You know, girls, whatever. But you get a boy and they all want to light things on fire. They want to be the one who light the candles. So they want to be the snuff out the candles. You put a campfire out in front of them and they put sticks in it. And it's like the U-Log. Nothing is happening in the U-Log, but you, you can't take your eyes away, and they put sticks in it, and they throw things in it, and they can't wait. And all this is building up in these boys until every boy has experienced this, the uncomfortable moment when flames got out of hand. So we, we won't let, ask for, like, every single boy's experience with this, but every boy's experience. The flame is great, right? And then suddenly you can't blow out your marshmallow, and you're like, oh, no, it's going to burn down my arm. Or you touch a napkin when your parents are in the other room in the candle, and it, it suddenly it floops up in flame, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. This is really scary. That's kind of like um, a Christmas Eve when I was a kid. So we've had two house fires. Not now. I'm the adult now. There's no house fires at our house. No, we had two house fires. One, we were on vacation and the wires crossed while we were at my grandmother's and it burned down the whole upstairs of our house, which is a good thing actually because we had, as I said, seven people in this house and it was not very big. And uh, for no cost out of our pocket, we got to expand and put dormers on. So that was a good thing. The other good fire that we had, that makes it sound like there's bad fires. The other good fire we had was Christmas Eve. Our house was built like, uh, like a circle kind of. You can imagine then the stairs went this way and the stairs went up. Can you picture the house like that? Kind of a classic square house. I think there's a term for it. I just don't know it. We're in the living room. Uh, We had built a fire for the occasion. We had a real fireplace then and we're all warming ourselves and hanging out until it's too uncomfortable and you got to turn this way and then you turn back. Um, And then someone yells from the bathroom that the bathroom's on fire. So we all run in there, of course, and my mom never lights candles. Now, we light candles all the time now, right? It, we go to Bath and Body Works, you get candles. They get three wick candles. They got candles like this big. And, you know, the, the mailman's coming over, and you said, hey, we got to light a candle because we, we got to make it smell nice in here. The, we didn't do that back then. You only lit candles on holidays. So we lit a, a candle. It went in the bathroom, and somehow that candle lit the rest of the bathroom on fire. Now, our, our theory is this. When we were kids, you got to imagine, my bathroom's long, so it goes out there. You would use the restroom, you'd go to station number two, which was the sink, and station number three is where the towel was, and here's where the candle is. We'd dry our hands, and our way out of the door, we'd shoot it out, we'd throw the towel back onto the counter as we made our way down the hallway. This is the only theory that my mom proposed. Now, that I don't like the theory because it incriminates someone you might know. My brother, you've met my brother, he was here just a couple weeks ago. So just for Chadwick's sake, I do not want to throw him under the bus. So somehow this light's on fire, we all run in, and it's this terrifying thing. You see flames going up the wall, this is pretty scary. It was an ugly bathroom, that's why it's a good fire. Um, So flames are going up the wall, my dad comes in, the hero of the day, with a towel. I didn't even know you could do this as a kid, and he just mats the whole thing out. Like It's all torched and we had to fix it. And um, death is kind of like fire and it once you let it loose it consumes and it never stops right it's never satisfied when you talk about death fire is never satisfied until it gets burned in everything in its path or someone stomps it out and the same thing as we talk about death Uh, it doesn't matter if you're rich it doesn't matter if you're poor it does not schedule for holidays we just had someone mourning their grandmother during the Easter it's like death don't you have any kind of sense here it doesn't care doesn't care if you're old or young, you got money or no money. And, and I think inside we know that this isn't right, right? This is part of the grief of death. You're not saying like, well, this is circle of life, no big deal. If someone you care about dies, someone you care about has died, the memories come back and you say, this just isn't right. So the Apostle Paul brings us to try to the people, and he says, okay, remember his thinking, the resurrection's real, the resurrection has taken away your sins, but the last enemy that is affecting you is death. And so this is 1 Corinthians 15. The the verse just before this, remember, he says, now Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the one we ended with last week. He picks it up here. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Also, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, Than when he comes, those who belong to him. So, just to get his thinking, we're going to kind of go verse by verse through this whole section. Um, To get his thinking, he's saying, okay, you are attached to Adam, and Adam is the first human being who ever lived. So, now think back all the way to the Garden of Eden. They're in virtual paradise. Like everything is perfect, the original organic garden, and everything is wonderful. And then the devil comes, and even though, just think about what, what does it mean to have no sin? There's no sickness. There's no homicides, there's no painful death, there's no cancer, none of it. So Adam and Eve are in the garden, the devil comes with a trick that I think he's given to every single one of us. And the trick is this, you take a look at your life and you say, I'm reasonably happy, but there's always a little bit more, right? There's always a possibility of more happiness. And so the devil says, here's the deal, if you just do this, you'll be a little bit happier. And this can come out in a lot of ways. Like, if you just have one more child, I will be happy. If you just have a baby, I will be happy. If you just have a little bit nicer car, I think you'll be a little bit happier. If you just have one more drink, you're going to be a little bit happier. If you just say one mean thing, you're going to be happier. If you're in the midst of an argument, and if you just, if you just shoot that one dart you know is going to hit home, you're going to feel a little bit better. And, and if your kid's in one more program if you have a little bit better job, if you have a little bit better house, if you have a little bit nicer, all of these things, if you just buy one more item at the store, there's going to be a sense of joy that's going to be so fulfilling. Sin lies, like every time. And it lies to us, and if you've experienced that, you've experienced that, you said, okay, I'm going to just disobey God because I'm going to feel better, and then inside there's a sense of guilt and and a sense of betrayal because the devil has tricked you and you've fallen for it. Adam and Eve fall for the same thing. The devil says, hey, if you just disobey God this one time, life's going to be better. And they fall for it. And piggybacked with that comes sin. And on the back of sin comes death. So that means like in our DNA, because we're connected through great, 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 all the way down to Adam, we've got death. And so in your DNA is death. And in your DNA is this pain and it all becomes because of sin. So now what's Paul's line of thought? Just in the same way that you're connected to a man, Adam, who brought all this frustration and and anger and destruction, the same way you are connected to Jesus. So through the blood of Adam, through bloodline, you're connected to Adam. And through the blood of Jesus, you're connected to him. And through faith in the Holy Spirit, you are sons and daughters of Jesus, which means you're connected to the only person who can give you life forever. So he says, the first fruits of those to rise... Now, we touched on this last week. This is his thinking. You're connected to Jesus. You will live forever. Now, the first fruits, the proof of that is the first fruits. We set a festival in the Old Testament times. If you weren't here with us last week, I'll make it quick. In the Old Testament times, they had a festival that ran kind of all the way through their harvest season. So in the beginning with barley, all the way to wheat. And they would take the beginning of what they got, and they would give it to the Lord. And the point being this. Okay, God, you have given me the start of this. I'm going to give that to you, trusting that more is going to come. If any of you have tulips in your garden, does anyone have tulips in their garden? We have a lot of rabbits here. Someone let out like 8 trillion domesticated rabbits in Castle Rock. I don't know who did that. Some circus came to town and did it. But, so I don't know if they eat all the bulbs or what. So I, We had bulbs in uh, Washington. We haven't put them here because it's harder to grow things here. Washington, you could literally just throw things at the ground and it would grow. Here it actually takes effort.
1: <laughs>
0: so The bulbs, like the first one to peak up is a sign that there's more to come, right? The first fruits, we would call that. Or microwave popcorn, if you don't like agrarian illustrations with the kids. You start microwave popcorn, the first one to pop, and you're like, no, I only, okay, so let's make it more healthy. You use coconut oil, and you're putting it in your pan, and you're shaking. The first one to pop is proof of what? There's more to come. And that's what Jesus, and that's what God wanted when he said, this is the festival I want you to recognize with first fruits. Recognize there's more to come. What's the point when they say Jesus is the first fruit? There's more to come. And if you're worried about your death, if you're worried about separation from God, he said there's more to come down the pipe and that's because Jesus has risen and your connection with Jesus knows you're going to rise. So all this sounds great. Okay, Jesus is going to stomp out death. Do you, feel like, do you feel like life is winning? Like when you take a look at the landscape of world, do you, do you feel like, how many of you read the news? I get Pulse on my, my phone. I think it's kind of a cool app, but it gives me like snippets of the news. I don't read the whole story with the Denver Post because so many of them are depressing. A man went to a funeral. A boy went to a funeral for a man who's 51. As I think I got this right. And then he was shot. Tibet: there's an earthquake. 1,400 people are killed and, along with Everest climbers. Every single day, there's four stories in, by Pulse that goes across. Every single day, there's at least one traffic accident and one murder. It feels like, you know, there's someone who has died. Does it feel like in your life that, like, life is winning? How do you think it feels like when you start looking at the landscape of the world, not just your relatives, you start stepping back on the landscape of the world and you see that people who are followers of Jesus are being killed all around the world? Does it feel like we're winning? Or do you feel like this helpless boy who just recognized fire in his hand and is seeing the bathroom go? What the Bible is saying is that this is not where the world is going towards destruction, destruction, destruction. The end goal of where the world is going is Jesus coming to stomp out death forever so that we can live with him. And there's going to be a day when he's going to sit at the right hand of God, utterly victorious, and raise your lowly body into something glorious and magical and wonderful. Then, he says, the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God, The father after he has destroyed all dominion that usually has the idea of like the demonic so he destroys all the evil spirits authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet and when he says that everything has been put under him it is clear that it does not include uh, that this does not include god himself who put everything under christ When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So the point is, Jesus is going to reign, okay? (coughs) Point number three. When you get out of seminary, you're 26 years old. Or I was 26 years old. Most of them are about 26. You're 26 years old. The last thing you want people to understand is that you don't know that much. So there's a secret technique that you do. Never preach on really hard verses, so if you have a brand new SEM graduate, this is how it works. Like they go, and like Bible class, you rotate through like four of them, right? You just don't, you don't want to preach on something that's really hard. When you get to the, like the sticky, very difficult, hard things to ex- explain, you just say, you know what, we'll get to that. I kept saying that. Book of Revelation, hey, we'll get to that. Book of Romans, we'll get to that. So now here is 1 Corinthians 15 when I said, hey, we're going to preach through all of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm 12 years out, so now I'm willing to say I don't know everything. However, we get to this verse. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Does that seem a little strange to anybody? Or we're all good, you know? <laughs> you have the easiest congregation I've ever had if you're just like, hey, baptism for the dead, of course, what else would we be doing? Well, um... Let's just explain this. We'll put worst construction and best construction on it. Okay, worst construction would mean that Paul is saying that, um, and I think there's an appeal to this, even though it's not true. This would mean if someone died outside of faith, they're dead, and because of the resurrection, I could be baptized in that person's place and there would be benefits to that person who had died. How many of you would like that? I'm ser- I would love that. I mean, don't you how many people, I'm serious. How many people do you love that are now dead who don't have faith? And if all I had to do is like show up at church and get baptized and that person's going to be okay, I'm in. You know, I'd be being baptized, all, every person I could think of, I'd just be having it roll. You know, it would just go again and again and again. We know that doesn't work like that. We know that once you die, you face, we have a finite uh, time of grace here on earth and then you face judgment. So that's worst construction. We know that's not it. Best construction is this. So I'll tell you a story. And it, um, the Greek word here when it says baptized for as the same kind of meaning we have, um, I'm going to take that test. That's a bad way. I'm going to cook. So my wife and I often take turns cooking. So if it's her turn to cook dinner, I'm going to cook dinner for her. That can mean two things. One is I'm making a meal to give to her, for her, for her benefit. It also means I'm going to cook dinner for my wife, which means in the place of, on behalf of my wife, because of my wife. That's kind of the idea. So imagine this story, and, you, and I don't think it's that big of a stretch because we, we see this pattern. You've got a very matriarchal uh, person in your family, this grandmother who loves the Lord. Or we'll say patriarchal even. You've got this father, grandfather who loves the Lord. It's a big deal to them. Whenever you get together, the whole family knows what, a, what their faith means to them. They're always in church. They've always got a, a word of encouragement to give. They have always can trust, even when bad things are happening in their life, they always point it back to Jesus, and you're like, that is amazing. And, they, and their deathbed, now you get to their deathbed. And I've seen this, you know, the family is around as they get to witness and they say, I want to hear the Psalms, what Jesus said, Psalm 23. I want to hear um, John, the good shepherd, because I fully trust that I'm in the Lord's arms. You can picture this person, right? Many of you have someone like this in your life. Now comes the nephew. And I've seen this more than once. The nephew comes who has no interest whatsoever in God and comes and hears the witness and testimony of their grandmother or their grandfather. They hear this, that, that a resurrection in Jesus actually means something to them. And I wish I could have some awesome story where they said, right now, hearing this, I want to change my life forever. It doesn't usually work that way. Speed ahead. They went and traveled. They went to school. Um, they, uh, they did all these things. Suddenly, they've got a child of their own. And they said, what do I do with this kid I think there's probably more to life than teaching my kid, you know, how to use she and her in a sentence. That's still important. I think there's more to life than just teaching them like chemicals are bad and corn syrup is no good. And I think it's uh, more important to give something to my kid besides like teamwork. Maybe there's something to this faith and they start to study the faith and they, they go back to and they said, "You know what? I went through school, I hated it. I went through confirmation, I hated it." I've heard this conversation before. But now it makes some sense to me when I see what God has to say and I have my own kid and I see how important this is. I want to be baptized in a sense or I, I never knew these things but now I want to be baptized on behalf of that person. So best construction, this is what I can picture. The person says, thinking of my grandparent who had this faith, I want to know that faith too. That's the best I can do it. We all in agreement? Yes, they'll go to the next sentence. So so this is his argument, like, why would you bother if no one was raised for the dead? And he's like, you know, just forget all that stuff. Why would, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? And why do I face death? Yes, just as surely as I boast about in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts, he's talking about people in Ephesus, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? He says, like, just erase everything I've said so far. Why in the world would I be persecuted if the resurrection isn't real? Why in the world would I go to prison if the resurrection isn't real? Why would I speak boldly and be stoned and shipwrecked and beat and made fun of? Why would I bother to do that if this isn't real? You've got to really like something. You've got to be really committed to something before you're going to let someone almost kill you or kill you. That's his point. The resurrection is absolutely real, and it means something for you today. Poet, um does anyone recognize this person? I would be really amazed. It's not Kelsey Grammer. This is uh, Thomas Lynch. He lives in Michigan. He's an undertaker. Okay, so he lives in Michigan. He, he works at a funeral home. He took over his father's funeral home. He's written a series of essays that are pretty good. And one of the things that he talks about is uh, grieving when you're talking about death. Because this is where it comes to the hill, right? So, Everyone's like, great. Okay, the resurrection happened. Fine, Paul. We'll, we'll do that. It takes my sins away. That's great. And he goes, where you really hits the road is when you start to face death and when you're mourning and when you're in pain. And he says, oftentimes, when people come to his funeral homes and someone is dead from leukemia or cancer and they're sitting inside the coffin, um, some of you have just mourned losses. Did anyone say to you, it's, that's not really them. It's just a shell. Lynch, Lynch argues that that is not much comfort. Cuz he says, "Now let's just extrapolate. Let, let's just move this all the way to the resurrection and here's this quote. If, what if rather than the crucifixion, he talking about Jesus opted for suffering low self-esteem for the remission of sins? What if rather than just a shell, he raised his personality? Say or the idea of himself. You think they'd have changed the calendar for that? And his point is when you downplay the death and pain and hurt you miss the point of what Christ has really done. We've got a great doctrine in the resurrection. It's unbelievable. We live in Colorado where it's sunny 300 days a year. we got a day like today. It's cold. It's rainy. There's two things that does. One, it brings you back to Seattle if you ever live there. Number two, don't you appreciate the sun now? If you never had days like this, uh, it's like if you only think about the resurrection, that's all you, it, 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 eventually that, that the bright light of the resurrection can begin to fade until you see how gloomy the day is. And I think that's what he, this is what he's getting at. Unless you face the fact that a real human being lived that was true God and true man, and a real human being died on a cross, and a real human being gave up his life, and a real human being, God and man in one, separated himself from God, it's, it's a gruesome and bloody and painful thing when you recognize that you see the beauty of the resurrection and it means not only facing death differently he's saying it means you face life differently and as for us way at the end we'll jump if the dead are not raised let's eat drink and be merry essentially for tomorrow we die that's the epicurean way do not be misled bad company corrupts good character come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So he has this big up, cup, encouraging thing about the truth of the resurrection, but he says, you know what, it's supposed to change the way you live on this earth because if there's no resurrection, why not eat, drink, and be merry? Why not live like the Cancun, uh, live it up lifestyle? That's as valid as any other if there's no resurrection, but he says the resurrection's true. And if you're, just think, um, as I think, is part of my life centered around I want to have some enjoyment in life? If part of your life saying, I just want to have the best that I can in life and so that I'm happy, maybe you're missing it, and he says, don't be misled. Stop sinning, because there's more to life. than You can be corrupted by the people you're with. Here is the challenge of Christianity. This is our last point of the day. The challenge of Christianity is uh, we can't just go live in a monastery out in the nowhere, because God calls us to witness to people. You can't just go live in your own cave and say, I'm going to live out my faith like this. Somehow you have to live in the culture, but the culture changes you. The the culture changes you in a positive way sometimes, but often in a negative way. So here is your challenge. I want to witness and I want to reach people, but when I take my step into that world, it's going to change who I am. Why do you think we get together as a church? Because you spent all your time in this world. I can't balance like that. If you spend all your time in this world, it's going to change you, and I think it can erode your faith. The reason we've got a believer it's not a group of believers It's not that your besties are going to be here. Not that you're saying, I can't wait to get there and hang out and put my arms around this person. But you've got a group of people who is still partly in this world. Who's still struggling with what you're struggling with. Who still wants to pray for you and encourage you. And their greatest joy is that you grow in your faith. Just as your greatest joy is that they're growing in your faith. And why do we do that? Because the resurrection's real. And on the last day, Jesus is going to come. And this is not where our train is going. The last day, Jesus is going to raise us all up from the dead. And he says, let's be real about that. We've got more to hope for than just this world. Amen.